the interesting challenge was the the conversation we had um, 2020 and continued into 2021, which was visiting rights in aged care. It dawned on me because I, I actually went for a walk before it all got really nasty and a 93-year-old was sitting there and I said to him, how are you going? He said, yeah, really good. He goes, I don't, I don't like this. He goes, I've lived through these before. And I said, oh, oh yeah, no, we'll, we'll survive. He says, absolutely. And I said, oh, how do you feel about, you know, getting visitors? And he, he was just brilliant. He just said, look, my 53-year-old son's just separated from his wife. I don't know who he hangs around with. Keep him out of here. <laughs> he, he said, I don't want him hanging around me. Um, and I just thought, you know, great answer. Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. Hello, welcome to the show. My name is Ash Deneef and welcome to another panel episode. Panel episodes are our chance to bring together some of the foremost experts on a topic for a casual, free-flowing conversation. What we really want from these chats is to explore ideas from a few different angles, but also just to have a bit of fun. And today's episode is all about industry-wide cooperation. As you know, the aged care sector is an incredibly complex environment with lots of different players and very different priorities. And now more than ever, finding common ground and ways to work together is crucial. There's plenty of organisations around Australia and the world leading cooperation, from peak bodies and trade associations to global ageing networks. And we're thrilled to have a really diverse cross-section in today's episode. Joining us on the panel is Stephen Johnson from Ageing 2.0, George Margellis from the Aged Care Industry Information Technology Council, Mary Patetsos from the Federation of Ethnic Communities Councils of Australia and the provider Aged Care Housing, as well as Katie Smith-Sloan from the Global Aging Network. If you've listened to the show before, you probably know about my background in music, and this episode is going to feature some music that I made in the middle break. Anyway, we hope you enjoy this panel episode on industry-wide cooperation. Why don't we jump straight into it? We'll do a quick around the room to intro ourselves. Why don't we start with Stephen Johnson? Great. Hi, Ash. Uh, I guess uh, Aging 2.0 is the company. It's a global uh, ecosystem for innovation. So great uh, great to be here. Just to, two seconds on Aging 2.0. It's a organization that I founded with Katie Fike about um, nine years ago now um, to bring together technology innovation on the one hand with aging, senior care, longevity issues on the other. And we've grown to about 130 volunteer-run chapters uh, around the world. Uh, and we operate a corporate program called The Collective, which is working with corporates to help them uh, address big missions and grand challenges um, facing society and helping improve the lives of older people. Welcome to the show, Stephen. George Margellis, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, hi, George Margellis. I chair the Aged Care Industry Information Technology Council, which is a mouthful. Um, That's basically the peak body for aged care technology co-formed by AXA and LASA uh, back in 2007 officially, but it's been in operation probably since around the year 2000 when the, um, the two peak bodies back then were sort of setting up the aged care IT roadshows. Uh, my background, I'm a medical practitioner by training, uh, been working in healthcare now for 40 years, 
last 25 years of that specifically in health technology. So started off in acute care, but as I got older, I started merging into aged care because it became more relevant to, to me. Um, key, key thing here is around um, you know, how do we help the industry adopt technology in a reasonably successful way. I mean, uh, yeah, we've seen it, uh, technology adoption in, in acute care that's been successful, but they've gone meandering. Hopefully aged care won't have that same challenge, but uh, big journey ahead. Absolutely. Welcome, George. Mary Patetsos, welcome. Tell us a bit about yourself. Hello, all. Uh, my name is Mary Patetsos, and I am the chairperson of the Federation of Ethnic Communities Councils of Australia. So we're the peak body that represents people of culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. We work in all sorts of areas, health and aged care being um, some of our main focus. I'm also the chairperson of a large aged care provider, a large not-for-profit called, called Aged Care Housing. Um, we are an innovative, we think anyway, um, mm-hmm. organisation within a very constrained and troubled sector at the moment. So uh, that's what that's what we do. Uh, I don't actually have one real job, so I also spend a lot of time in health. I um, sit on SA Health Board in South Australia and also on a university council. So I find the uh, connections between all those three, the, the, all those things very interesting uh, all the time. Yeah, absolutely. A wide remit there. Welcome, Mary. And Katie Smith-Sloan, welcome. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Thank you, Ash. Um, well, I have the privilege of both leading a peak body and leading a network. Um, so the peak body is based in the U.S. It's a it's an association of not-for-profit providers of services for older adults of all kinds, everything from meals on wheels to hospice care and everything in between. We're about 5,500 member organizations across the states. Um, But I also lead a network called the Global Aging Network, which is similarly a network of primarily providers, but it's tech companies, it's researchers, it's uh, businesses that are all interested in making the world a better place to grow old. Um, And our goal is really to share, to learn from each other, to innovate, uh, to find solutions, and to advocate at the United Nations. So glad to be with you. Yeah, fantastic. And and thanks for jumping on the plane and, and doing the two weeks quarantine to join us. Oh, sorry, no, you're calling in from the States today. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> if only. An excellent place to start then is the idea of cooperation amongst the industry and amongst different parties. And I'd really like to, maybe Stephen, you can lead us off with this with your international network that you're leading. How do you unite an industry? How do you foster cooperation? Yeah, no, I think it's a really important topic right now. And the pandemic has given us, I think, some fascinating and powerful um, reminders that international cooperation is possible uh, if we're focused on uh, solving uh, a sufficiently clear and precise problem. And so I think my perspective on this is more about let's start with the mission let's start with the problem that we're trying to solve and i think this applies to all industry and frankly all society in terms of you know the look at the raft of issues that are facing us you know as we get up every day and bombarded by the news and uh, personal and macro stories we can't help but think you know we've got challenges and that is the way that i think about the world which is you know what are the big and interesting problems to solve and i don't necessarily want to constrain the collaboration or the cooperation among any particular type of industry sector or player Um, but i think it's super important to then have the credibility and have the depth and have the 
industry buy-in with people who have the depth and the connections and the network. So I do think there's a healthy balance between trying to think about what problem we're all solving, but then actually also have you know, real depth and real expertise in sector-specific organizations. So I think the real I think the, the, the key thing for me is, is mission, uh, mission-driven um, innovation. And I think it's about thinking it as a system where we work together and it's an iterative process by we, um, understanding the complexity and the dynamic nature of, of the work that we're doing. I would just add to that that I think that with global aging, we're dealing with something that we have never experienced before in the world. And so um, we, there is no roadmap. We're, we're building the roadmap as we go. And so we need to work together to do that because none of us have a lock on the truth here, but we all have the ability to offer ideas and to innovate and to work together. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And I, and I think we're doing it in a context that uh, involves multiple changes. So I said the other day somewhere, and I think I offended some people, but nevertheless, it's, it's okay. Um, I, I said, look, you know, the idea that there's a mythical person um, most likely the expectation being a woman at home, ready and willing to care um, and spend the second half of her life caring for parent, parents, having spent the first half um, looking after children. It's probably something we need to get over. Um, mm. you know, so, so, so expecting that, that especially with eth ethnic communities, you know, the, the sort of the, almost the misrepresentation that there's this huge family and a whole bunch of people hanging around with nothing better to do, um, you know, except continue a care role is, is an expectation that we need to get over. And um, in that light, how do we, you know, at, how do older people age really well um, and have extraordinary lives um, and what's available to us to do that? And in some ways I see the pandemic um, dare I raise it first, um, as a really huge catalyst um, to, to push us along in terms of use of technology. We've seen that in health and we're seeing it now in aged care and connect, that connectivity. So I think this is a real opportunity uh, for us to debunk some old stereotypes and also solve old problems or, you know, wicked problems um, or things that we have always needed to deal with um, cleverly right now mm. in different ways. Look, I, I agree, Mary. There, and I think, but again, it's a bit of a pendulum in that we've we've gone from you know, the care, the personal care is doing all work to a lot of technology companies telling us technology will do the whole thing as well. So, you know, it really is somewhere in the middle is a solution, and I think that's one of the challenges we face in this area is that you know it's a classical: if you make hammers, everything looks like a nail; if you make technology, everything looks like a technology problem that needs to be solved. Um, how do we combine? the technology with the carers with the social infrastructure i mean yeah there's a whole you're right the pandemics highlighted a whole bunch of social issues that um you know that we've all been talking about social determinants of health for many many years but you know, sydney in the last couple of weeks has just highlighted the fact that when you put the whole city in lockdown those of us in the eastern suburbs you know, drink coffees and watch tape watch netflix and those of them in the western suburbs struggle to put food on their on their table so there's a whole bunch of issues and it, it is really complex. Um, to Kate's point, I mean, yeah, my, my good friend Eric Dishman about 25 years ago was talking about the silver tsunami coming along and everyone sort of went, ah, we'll worry about that when we get there. Well, hey, we're there. What are some, I mean, can we think of forums in which information that is crucial? Well, let's, let's take the pandemic, the, the elephant in the room as we record this in 2021, Australia is suffering multiple lockdowns. How can we foster cooperation and shared information throughout the pandemic to 
for best practices, for example? I think that's that's an important point, and and I mm. guess um, Katie and I have a sort of definition around everything we do on a global basis. Yeah. Um, I think the interplay between the local expertise, where we really need to understand from the front lines what's happening, what's working, and you know, be interested in Mary's point about sort of the cultural and refer- you know re- uh, relevance of some of the interventions that might not work. I mean, I'm spending quite a lot of time with the Japanese. And they love robots, you know, to be very, a, a rather sort of simplistic model. And George will probably know as much as anybody. But that doesn't necessarily translate to certain places. But frankly, there are some things that a robot does better. You know, I would rather be carried up the stair, stairway by a stairlift than a human uh, if I was sort of thinking about you know, robots and broadly. So I think adapting insights that work globally, I think, or to, having a global perspective is important and then adapting them locally uh, is a, it's significant. We, we just did a, a session with Stanford on, on family caregiving and tried to understand the challenges that the startups in the US were facing around family caregiving and, and, and they gave us some really clear perspectives that they're just missing an industry voice around things like how do we have a common view on impact metrics and you know, what does success look like in family caregiving how do we better integrate the family caregiving innovators with the health systems for example which are often seeing the family as an entirely separate thing outside uh health and and, and sort of the more formal care and sort of creating a more more sort of an on-ramp between the family system as it is and the health system was one of those sort of loud and clear models but each location and each locality is going to be different but there does need to be an ability to tap into global insights and best practices and i think one of the key things is obviously making sure that we strongly support evidence-based information and not and and you know knock back on misinformation because that's one of the big challenges we face and i think mary may better comment but i see it from in the ethnic community that i'm involved mm. with that misinformation drives a lot of the activity um so therefore yeah we've got a responsibility to make sure we actually you know, drive evidence-based information i agree and i think there's um much we can learn and i mean we are learning fast now because we, we you know again the pressure's on we have we can't wait um, I think the other the other interesting thing from my perspective, wearing my Flickr hat, is uh, and and I'm stating the obvious, and everyone else has said it, is access to resources and um, and uh, status, you know, education status, um, income status is is critical. Uh, you know, for, for culturally linguistically diverse communities, there are particular characteristics. We all have a culture. We all have a language. Um, uh, if you're well educated and have access to resources and money, you can solve problems. Um, what this pandemic and what our situation and what the situation for this, you know, the, the silver tsunami is showing is that it, the, the, the struggle is for those that don't. Um, yeah, if, if you can solve the problem for those that have um, access to resource issues, then you can solve it for all of us. And, and I think that that's, and I, you know, I, and, and therein lies challenge. I mean, what we know now is that in Sydney, the, the, the hardest hit population groups are also the poorest, and they're also the ones that are essential workers. So they're all, they're also the ones living in three dimension, two, two or three um, intergenerational households. Um, so, so in many ways, the challenges are clear, clearer um, and should be clearer. And the and the way in which we break down um, how we solve them. Um, is it relies on us understanding some really complex things that in the past we may have parked 
um, we, you know, we, we, you know, we think we're a first world country. Well, we're not necessarily so in some suburbs. Um, you know, poverty has got a postcode. Um, and, and how we apply um, our thinking to, to that, I think is really interesting. So um, there goes the challenge, mm. networkers. Yeah, Katie, I mean, your, your network is quite large. When I imagine that there are a vast array of, uh, you know, access to resources and opportunities within the organisations that you represent. How do you get this sort of equality across there? So, you know, we make a real effort to reach out to our, our parts of our network that are in less resourced countries and less, less resourced organisations. We have so much to learn from them uh, because, to Mary's point, you know, mm. the big, big, the drive, the need to be innovative, the need to be creative and just use just sort of basic ingenuity to solve problems when you don't have resources is something we can all learn from and take and take away from that. Um, I also think Mary made a really good point about um, the essential workers. You know, at the end of the day, providing services to older adults is a human process. It's, it involves people. And technology does have a role for sure as a lever, as an enabler. But at the end of the day, we need people. And I'd say one of the biggest crises we face right now around the world, particularly in the developed world, is um, human capital. Mm. People willing and and, uh, able and trained and qualified to provide services to older adults. And um, we are, you know, we're all, every country is, fighting for the same small workforce. So we have a, we've created a problem for ourselves that we have to solve, which is to make jobs in our field valued and valuable, pay people well, treat them well, develop strong workforce cultures, and give them the tools with, through technology to allow them to do their jobs efficiently and effectively. Yep, I think Katie makes a great point there. I mean, just last week, CEDA released its report about the aged care workforce in Australia, and it talks about yeah, a shortage of well over 100,000 in the next couple of years. And to be honest, that's probably underestimating the problem because mm. of the, the fact that the unmet need is that, that we have out there. Um, a lot of the stuff we've been looking at within the council is you know, how do you digitally enable a workforce to be able to utilise technology to augment its capabilities? Um, mm. you know, it's all well and good saying we're going to implement an IT system if the workforce isn't trained about how to use it, doesn't understand the, 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 the value, the basis of the value around it. Um, the system's poorly implemented, and we've seen that in a lot of uh, system, system solutions where great solutions are poorly implemented. Um, then you're just going to add work to the industry, not, not remove work. And uh, yeah, we need to make sure we uh, have a workforce which is set up to do, be able to utilise this technology properly. I think the other interesting uh, challenges, of course, decision-makers, those that tend to be a bit older, uh, the least uh, sort of technology migrants or, you know, so they're non, they're non-natural inhabitants of the technology world. <laughs> so we're, we're making decisions and we're not anywhere near being experts on it. I mean, uh, so, so there's a disconnect between um, knowledge of that um, at the top. So you see a lot of failed, failed activity, um, which, because it, it's poorly informed. Uh, I think the, the other, the other bit of challenge is that, um, at the same time, you know, we were absolutely terrified because there's so much investment now in in, in learning about cybersecurity, no, the number of um, you know, attacks per day. Uh, so, and it's real because because uh, in in the sector, um, the more we use technology, the more likely at some point that we'll be um, 
will be hit. Absolutely. And, and how do you run a human service um, that relies on getting the right people to the right places to have medication, to do a whole bunch of stuff when the tablets all crash? Um, so yeah, it's it's a very it's a very real phenomenon. So so we solve some problems, and as humans, we create others. So there you go. I mean, that, that that makes me kind of think you know how uh, interested in your the other panelists perspectives like how do we then start to go beyond our remit when we've got things like inequality that are impacting the outcomes we've got the fact that you know green environmental climate change is impacting the quality of life for older people it's like kill you know knocking two years off the average life expectancy sort of driven by air pollution i mean the cyber security piece it's almost as if we've got a, a range of skills and a range of, you know, agenda items that are mushrooming and are sort of broader than any one industry. And I'm kind of interested in how you all go about like connecting with those cybersecurity, climate change, inequality, institutional breakdown topics, which are impacting, you know, our daily work, but they're not necessarily within the, within the industry. One challenge I've seen is that it makes my board meetings last about three hours longer because as we cover all those topics in our board meetings, we end up uh, you know, going down a whole bunch of rabbit holes. So, so um, and, and I guess when you look at standard eight within the aged care governance, you know, uh, boards that are skills-based is going to be really essential. So you can actually have those discussions at a, at a senior level. I mean, yeah, we've seen a lot of uh, boards in aged care which have been volunteer-driven with uh, – uh, people with all good intentions but without the lack of skills to to be able to capture some of this started stuff in their in their discussions uh we need to move to a much more professionalized um skills skills based board so they can actually have those meaningful discussions at a board level rather than you know just at operational level i think it's such a good interesting point Stephen, because i i think i feel like issues like climate change and cybersecurity. i'm out of my league right i'm on a steep mm -hmm. learning curve and we, um, you know, we've all, always thought those are sort of issues that are very tangential to our core work. But the truth is, they are part of our core work, and we just have to get smarter about it and find those intersections and find those ways of addressing them and, and you know, kind of tying, tying our work together. Uh, we haven't done it yet. We haven't done it yet as a sector. Um, and I think a lot of it is because we just aren't smart enough about it yet. But, but, but at that point, it's, it's incredibly challenging to even get your head around it. I've been diving into crypto in the last uh, you know, few months and the overlaps with things like care coins and creating models by which you start to give people coins to share their data about their steps and their health issues. Instead of, you can trace it all back, but you quickly end up with just a, a, a crazy amount of Project and nobody's nobody. I think in the 15th century, somebody could know everything. Yeah, but men enough Greek women. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair point. I think, um, but I would say that the a level of, of skill, just the professionalization, George, your point is people by definition, the professionalization is like, I know a lot about my thing, and they sort of they burrow deep, and by definition, then they sort of become. They have to be siloed because it's impossible to go deep and broad for everything. And I, I'd, I'd love it to be, hey, we got some awesome tech, you know, cloud answer that gives us answers that you know the when we need them. I, I think there may be something that we can kind of get some help from tech, but it, it's not enough. There does need to be more people 
who kind of have that perspective, but then you get you, the room is so full of different perspectives. You, you guys know people is more than I do. I one way out of this morass, I think, is um, to have to be quite very specific about the problem. We obviously we haven't gone into problems because we could obviously this could be a twelve hour conversation talking about all the different challenges. The way that Mariana Mazzucato talks about the sort of mission-driven innovation, and, and I think quite a few people are now sort of taking this model, which is, okay, we don't know everything about everything, but what about um, falls of people in their homes when they get out of the bath? Um, what about isolation of uh, people whose family have moved away? What about, you know, dot, 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 like food, nutrition, how to increase the protein consumption, you know, that is, to me, that's interesting. If we can take a slice and then we go deep and then we go very specific and then we identify, okay, who really needs to be at this table with this very specific. And then if it's too broad, we go even deeper and even deeper. And I think there may be a way if we can just get quite specific that we can bring enough people together to have those perspectives. I just worry that if we just go up a, up a bit and like, then it's basically... We need Wikipedia, you know, at the table, and it's just sort of too broad. Right? But that's just... pig bodies are, are are a challenge in that you know in Australia we probably have half a dozen aged care related pig bodies. I mean, the lasso and axe are sort of the, the the big ones, and we've had the guild sort of fold over the last couple of months. But you know, again, we've got OPAM, we've got CODA, we've got a, so many aged care pig bodies, and um and and they each sort of cover different parts of the sector, so to some degree. So I guess. You know, the challenge is, is how do we have a unified voice? And I mean, I know there's been discussions around that unified voice, but it, it, it is hard because, um, yeah, again, small market, lots of peak bodies, uh, big, big gorilla in the room is government because it pays for 90% of the care type models. So we need to, you know, and they, and they, they have, they struggle to interact with, uh, with a lot of peak bodies for, for various reasons. It's uh, not, not an easy problem. No, and, and I think that part of the uh, challenge is the way that peak bodies are kind of set up. I mean, you've got a consumer group and a provider group as if they're kind of foes, as if there's not, they're not really one of the same, they should be one of the same thing, you know, which I shouldn't. And I feel it a lot because I, uh, I wear multiple hats. Hmm. So I could be on something wearing my, well, because I'm the chairperson of the federation, but I'm also the employer and provider. And so I, I feel... Uh, that schism quite often mm -hmm. and um and then i then i then i wear a tertiary education hat where we talk about workforce which is the other big elephant in the room um which is because we don't have enough people who want to work in the in the sector so i feel that frustration a lot because i can see um the perspective so i don't i don't have to wear one hat all the time um i don't have a job that pays me to talk on behalf of consumers constantly which you have if you're a you know, CEO of a peak provider. Yeah. And even though you can see the, the, the interesting challenge was the, the conversation we had um, 2020 and continued in 2021, which was visiting rights in aged care. Um, uh, so so when, when we have lockdowns that we close, we close residential care down and you know, older people don't get family visits. Um, and that was a massive, massive um, example of the tension that happens. So um, you know, so providers had to hold the fort and say, well, you know, we can't have 120 or 240 people walking through here every day. I can't have two people walking through my house, but I can have 240 people walking through, you know, a facility um, or, a, you know, a residential care home. Um, 
and, and yet they were demonised mm. for making those decisions. And, and in fact, when they when they had people dying um, because COVID got inside, then they were they were demonised again. Demonized again. <laughs> um, and 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 I, it dawned on me because I, I actually went for a walk before it all got really nasty and. A 93-year-old was sitting there and I said to him, how are you going? He said, yeah, really good. He goes, I don't, I don't like this. He goes, I've lived through these before. And I said, oh, oh yeah, no, we'll, we'll survive. He says, absolutely. And I said, oh, how do you feel about, you know, getting visitors? And he, he was just brilliant. He just said, look, my 53-year-old son's just separated from his wife. I don't know who he hangs around with. Keep him out of here. He <laughs> 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 said, I don't want him hanging around me. Um, and I just thought, you know, great answer. I, you know, the 53-year-old was writing letters to me saying, you know, I demand to see my father, um, you know, and I just and I just, I just, just ask your father what he wants. And he basically thought, well, actually, I'm quite happy. Leave me alone for a little while. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the complex problem, uh, the solution for the individual is already made for them. I mean, he, he wanted to be safe. He didn't want to, have to, you know, risk. He didn't want to take that risk. And no matter what the peak consumer groups are thinking and no matter what the provider groups are thinking, individuals can make some rational choices and we need to hear those rational choices um, somehow and live with the decisions that we make then based on those. That reminds me of the uh, Atul Gawande's point around um, you know, the uh, being mortal, I think it is, when he sort of talks about how the younger you know, kids, adult kids are always trying to like control and protect and, and the older people just sort of want to live their lives. And, and I think that is a question for us to, is to kind of always ensure that we are reinfected. We, the older people of today and tomorrow are different from the older people of yesterday because people are you know evolving and constantly changing. And one of the things that I'm interested in, I'm finding myself much more, spending much more time looking at of the science of longevity not that i'm particularly you know, into all these anti-aging drugs and biotech but there's some really interesting commonalities with people who are living longer and are healthier and therefore are very different to the people who were that age you know 10 years or 15 20 years ago and mm. i think our expectations just the way that human nature is evolved is based on what used to work it are the tools and the ex expectations and the processes that we're applying to tomorrow's problems and that sort of linear thinking doesn't i think work with either the exponential world in which we're living in which things we just don't think exponentially or the fact that the type of people that who are age, uh, age uh, in age care um uh, buildings or uh, living independently are different than they were 10 or 15 years ago i guess the question then is that what responsibility do we have to ensure that um, the people who are doing things like longevity exercises or the uh, treatments uh, are again doing it on the evidence. I mean, I've seen a lot of longevity solutions come out there that are, you know, uh, Peter Evans type stuff where you yeah, flash some flash of blue light and and stand on one leg and you and you live five years longer type stuff. To you know, <laughs> proper evidence based stuff. I mean, yeah, there's strong evidence that things like metformin, if used properly, can increase longevity. How do what what role does technology and or industry play in ensuring that we, we focus on the evidence not on not on the hype and uh yeah, we've all seen the hype and we've seen the the, the, the side effects of the hype so we need to play take a responsible role there as well yeah and in the same way that we need to recognize that um while we've added the number of years well, well you know, humans are living longer um 
we haven't added enough fun and capability in those in those later years um well not not mm. enough of it so um and, and you're right i mean if, if i if i follow the trajectory of my children's thinking but my teenagers um you know i'm i'm losing capability every minute i know less every day according to them so at some point i'm going to know very little because <laughs> they've just you know they've just decided that i know nothing compared to them so um sort of changing that that stereotype i spoke about it earlier it's a stereotype of who you know what it is to be an older person compared to our younger selves and how we can capture that and own it and make something of it is i think a really interesting uh, it, we, our generation, people hopefully listening and, and the people here, we're not gonna we're not gonna be gonna be happy doing things that are not non-fulfilling, which is not. So I, I you know we have to be responsible for shaping stuff now because we're not gonna wanna be hanging around, I don't know, doing boring things. You know, I don't wanna be playing bingo at 88. Surely not. Um <laughs> so how how do we add meaning to those later years? I guess is a bit of a challenge for all of us. The thing that I find the thing I find so interesting about the whole longevity question is really we're extending the years that we're on the planet. It's not just that we're extending old age and the years that we're old. So, you know, it could be that over time we consider, I don't know, young adults start at age 30, not at age 21, because we're all living longer. Middle age goes till 70. And then old age starts. So we're, I think we just have to think, rethink the whole trajectory of our lifespan with this idea that we've got perhaps 10 more years of our lifespan. Now, I don't know what that looks like exactly, what the new nomenclature will be. Um, but right now, I think we're very focused on these. We're, we're old for so many more years, so we need to make the best of it, which is true. But we also need to make the best of the rest of our lives. I think what Chip, Chip Conley is good on this and Joe Coughlin talking about like another 8,000 days that we've got uh, bolted on and, and uh, a project we've uh, started with uh, one of our Japanese uh, partners is called Pinkoro, the Pinkoro Society, which is a sort of version of a Japanese phrase meaning to live long and die short. And there was this expectation that if you can actually think about, take a step back and say, what would a good society look like in that perspective, then you would have maximizing the health span so the time that you are actually alive and in good health as a percentage of your time total life the delay of the onset of frailty and chronic morbidity at the end of your life and then a good and dignified death and i think a lot of people perhaps don't necessarily think about putting them all together i think there's a lot of expectation a colleague of mine was saying that his sort of version of healthy aging that he thinks people are talking about is i want to stay 40 forever and i think what we're not necessarily thinking about is actually the whole sweep of things and how to have a quality death as well as a quality life and i think if we can put that together and that i think it changes a few <clears throat> a few things about how we run society and what expectations are and it forces the conversation much earlier and i think that would be really helpful for the whole industry and the whole society to think about aging not just as something that you have to encounter at the uh end of your life but something that you really start to work earlier on as you know maybe 21 30 to think through making sure that you have maximize you, you maximize your health span and that that work needs to happen much 
much earlier in people's lives. I mean, one issue that Anna is rising, my kids are a bit older than Mary's and they're sort of now, now sort of getting them into the workforce. So how do we ensure that, of course, by just by increasing our longevity, we just don't, the, the boomers, and I'm, my kids call me a boomer all the time, don't bottle up the system. I mean, yeah, there's the, that challenge of, yeah, do we, how do you get out of the way and do something else, which it can be productive, can be enjoyable, can be, uh, you know, fulfilling, but not block career prospects for, for the younger generation coming through. I mean, we've seen a lot of uh, uh, people who probably should have moved on 10 years ago who were stuck there and the, 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 the backlog of 30 year olds who can't get into the, into the, their professions because of that is a, is a challenge as well. It's because we, uh, I mean, we haven't worked out how to create meaning other than employment. So, yeah. so, exactly. so yeah. people hang on to work as if it's meaningful. Um, and it, you know, to some degree it is, um, but but we have to move beyond that and get and, and, and you know none of this is helping because uh, there's been a huge delay. I was looking at the data the other day, a huge delay of um, people um, not not moving on from their what they would have been their last employment years because of COVID. Um, they're basically saying, well, I'll just keep on working um, mm. because I can't travel. So in the absence, you know, what we substituted work for was travel. Um, and now we now we're stuck, so we're just hanging. If this goes for five years, that's going to be pretty painful. Um, yeah. Such a waste, though. You've got all these problems to solve in the world, and all these older people who have just retired or about to retire or want to retire, who are just incredibly you know, unutilized. And it just feels that I mean, there's been a few people who try to build that bridge, but it just does feel like a massive misallocation of societal resources. And frankly, the older people who've just read also. You know got the resources as well and so we've got this big latent you know asset in society that we're not putting to use to solve the interesting it could be community problems or macro problems but there's a lot of wasted mismatch happening here i think that's true and i think it's because we've never thought of older people as an asset right right and and, and there's so much sort of ageism in our societies that we don't view them as some a resource that we can tap and actually can provide a wisdom and, and contribution and purpose. Going back to something that uh, that Katie, you you and George have both mentioned, and I've seen that you talk about this quite a bit online as well, is the workforce issue and attracting more people into the space. And maybe there's a way here. I'm gonna throw out a crazy idea. Katie, you said that we haven't seen older adults as a resource before. Is there a way to partner the the resource of older adults and these extra years to, with the problem of a diminishing workforce? I absolutely think that there is, and actually. It, during the pandemic, there's been an interesting example of that. Um, so at the height of the pandemic in New York City, there were something like 70,000 doctors and nurses that came out of retirement wow. to help provide support to the hospital. In this case, it was mostly hospitals, not so much nursing homes, but in, this, in the city. And then that sort of spread around the country. So these are people who had, had years of a profession. They had lots of skills under their belt. 
and they had, we needed them. Mm. And I think if we can figure out what was the, what was the impetus for those people other than a crisis was, and what did they get out of it? I think we could try to figure out how do we make this more normal and not just focused in a crisis situation? How do we redesign jobs so that they're much more flexible, part-time, um, job sharing, whatever it is, and not think of ourselves as the you know nine to five, everything is nine to five, and then you go home, um, so that we can accommodate people's lifestyles as they have left the formal workforce and uh, in, in retirement. So I think we've got a lot to do there, but I think I think both Stephen and you have suggested it's just there's an untapped resource there. Definitely. I mean, and one of the roles obviously for the airport technology is to remove those demanding drudgery type tasks to enable the individuals to be able to deliver the care type tasks. And uh, again, they're, they're, like you said, there's a whole bunch of people in their 60s and 70s who are much more physically able than what they were you know, 50 years ago, who can be who can play an active role. But if you look at the recruitment in aged care, it's 25 year olds with uh, you know a driver's license and the ability to uh, physically lift someone and turn them. That, mm. That's not a the, the, the only skill you need. Maybe even the robots will take a play, take a role there. I think that I think the workforce challenges in aged care are so extreme that I mean, while we continue to pay them twenty plus dollars an hour, um, we're not going to get older people or younger people wanting to work for the sector. Yeah. It doesn't. I mean, it's just we, we need to you know fundamentally change. So if you talk to any physio student in the university, they'll do anything to not have to go into aged care. They, they want to do babies. They want to do so. You know, they'll do disabled. They'll mm. do private practice, but they just don't want to work in aged care. Um, even in medicine, I mean, yeah, trying to get geriatricians to actually get actively involved. I mean, yeah, they're, they're uh, so there's so few of them and so uh, scarcely up, uh, funded that, yeah, it's a, it, at the end of the day, you know, money, money take, has an important role. Mm. Yeah, there's a program in the US called Teach for America. And it, I, I just think this is an amazing model. So they take kids out of college, make it highly competitive to get in, make it very prestigious to get an assignment teaching at an inner city school for two years. And Mm -hmm. and these students make this commitment. And it's an incredible resume builder. It's an incredible opportunity for these kids to learn real life skills, because this is hard work. Some of them stay in teaching, some of them don't. But somehow Teach for America has made this a prestigious step out of college. And I keep thinking, what's the magic there that we can translate into our field and create that kind of prestigious opportunity and hope that, you know, of the thousands of kids that end up in whatever this thing becomes, half of them will decide to make it a career or a third of them. But um, I can't, I haven't sort of figured out what the magic is, but there is some magic there. Well, I think a lot of the time, um, advertising companies um, change systems. I mean, I was reading about how in the past, women in the 1920s um, didn't smoke. And this was a real problem for Philip Morris. And so they created this Torches of Freedom uh, um, campaign where women were going down the street smoking. And this is liberating. And guess what? After that time, we had a massive increase in percentage of women smoking. And it, I think there is an opportunity for proper propaganda for good, if you like, where we can get smart, get creative, and sort of think about how to, as you say, Katie, change the perception of care. Could it be as exciting as going off and doing a, a year of service abroad to, you know, go up, you know, help build schools in Nepal? Could we have that same kind of mentality 
But I think that's a really interesting mm -hmm. opportunity for the people outside aging who are working in Madison Avenue to think about using some of their skills or, or the Google entrepreneurs who are optimizing AdWord clicks and um, social media companies who are wanting us to get addicted. Let's get them yeah. to get addicted to the good things. So, so obviously one key area we've been looking at is, okay, you know, so if we have this workforce challenge, how do you improve the productivity of the workforce? You know, how do you make them be able to do more within the limited resources? And you know, we've been looking at what is the role of data? If you have data transparency, can you enable a workforce to focus on the things that, that have effect rather than focus on the things that don't have effect? I mean, in, in healthcare, we used to talk about 30% of what we spent in healthcare was wasted until you actually have transparency. You don't know where that waste is. Do we have that same opportunity in aged care? Do we sort of start looking at you know, what parts of what's being delivered by an aged care provider at $40 an hour, whatever it is, can be replaced? And uh, I think Katie touched on it and Stephen touched on it by community. How do you get community to fill in some of those gaps so that aged care providers provide high value care, not just low value care. And uh, yeah, we, we talk about value-based healthcare in uh, in the acute care sector. We haven't even started to have that discussion about value-based aged care. You know, how do we judge value the, uh, the, the the care we're providing and, and you know, put the resources in where it's gonna have the maximum bang for buck. And it's uh, data is a tool there, but uh, again, having a, the people at the ground actively involved because you know, if Canberra defines what data is, what, what value is, then they have different metrics to what an 85-year-old living at home with multiple disabilities has. Mm. Hey, Mario, I, I wanted to ask here because your work with FECA, you're representing ethnic communities and a lot of the aged care employees that I interact with in my work are from ethnic communities. A lot of them are migrant workers or their their families have you know, come over themselves. Is this a sustainable sort of resource? Are people only engaging in aged care because of the the low wage and low barter entry there for them? What's what's the story? Oh, the story is really complex, of course. Um, so uh, so the workforce has, has got a really high number of um, people from uh, migrant refugee um, backgrounds. A lot of them are visa holders. Um, mm -hmm. So they, they're on a pathway perhaps to permanent residency, but not always. Uh, it's it's a very um, it's a very difficult space to get young kids, our kids, to work in. Um, so we've got low uptake of that, and, and, and we've got international borders closed at the moment. So you know, we're having to keep the workforce that we have and and, um, and, and, and entice them to stay in an environment where they, they themselves um, are being underpaid mm. and uh, job satisfaction is not always great. So it's a really the workforce is a really tricky um, thing for us. Um, on top of that, we've got mandatory vaccinations now for people working in residential care. So mm. um, it's the first sector that's got that happening. So they um, having to you know, jump and through another hoop. Um, so we need to focus on this because we're just not going to have the supply that we had from overseas. You know, inevitably coming through to us in the short short to maybe medium term. So. It's a massive issue. Um, you know, those of it that clever, clever employers are providing um, really good work conditions and trying to understand how important it is to keep that workforce um, and also to sustain a more permanent uh, relationship with our workers where we decasualize, mm. we take them off the kind of we are in control and we'll give you the hours we want to to the you tell us what you want and which where you want to work so that we can you know create a, um, a more permanent 
um, and um, enjoyable uh, place for you to work where you can connect to individuals and um, and your and your work has meaning as well as just you know paying paying the bills. So look, I think it's it's a it's a very complex question. I mean, I I don't know how many people in first world countries raise children in the hope that they work in aged care. Um, mm. You know, how many of us are telling our kids that you know your best bet is to go and become a carer um, in an aged care facility or in fact in someone's home? Mm. Um, so it's it's a real challenge. <laughs> so I, I don't have any. I mean, look, we've got we've got a workforce, and we're not losing our turnover. It's low. Um, so in the, on the positive, obviously, people that choose to work in that space um, stay if you give them good reason to, and they enjoy their work. So you know, we don't. Uh, once you start working in aged care, I think you start to enjoy it. So we, but there are some challenges. Well, yeah, I mean, a level four home care patient, you know, 20 years ago would have been in an acute care hospital <laughs> and now they're really providing level, that sort of level of care in the home. And, you know, it's not easy. I mean, I've, you know, I've, it's, it's, it's a, you know, quite, a, quite a risky challenge to, to, to manage that. One of the big things we push for wearing multiple hats um, is that the Commonwealth Government consider converting a whole bunch of visa holders into per, per, you know, giving them permanent residency mm. during the pandemic because they couldn't go home. Um, and, and, you know, keeping them and saying, well, you know, you, you can be eligible for permanent residency, stay here. And the only obligation we have on you is, of course, to, you know, be an upright citizen and to continue working in the sector that you're currently working in. So um, I think that would have been a win-win. But it's so, so in between everything else, you know, we're also caught up in immigration and, you know, um, border, border, border challenges, which um, don't always make for logical um, policy decisions. So mm, then, then we're into politics, right? Well, that's exactly right, and, and it is. It is. It is going to be really interesting what immigration policies look like mm. post COVID. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that I think even for groups like us, um, the the dialogue, the conversation is going to be have to be different because we. People are frightened um, of others now in a way that we is even more extreme than before. Hmm. So it's going to be really hard to have you know let's let's you know do a global economy, a global population movement um, approach to problem solving. That conversation's a long way from um, our thinking in any logical sense. So it would. I, I don't think anyone would be brave enough to have it right now. Yeah. I mean, it's classic. I mean, we, we, we have done that pendulum thing. We've gone from, you know, strong institutionalised care with you know, large residential aged care facilities, and then now we've moved over and started saying, okay, all care has to be in the home. And, and like you said, Mary, I mean, yeah, somewhere in the middle there, pan metronaris, the Greeks say, somewhere in the middle, there's a there's a, a middle ground that, that makes sense, and we need to find that middle ground. I think the Royal Commission pointed to some of those um, challenges, and hopefully the move to IPA, Independent Hospital Pricing Authority, looking at values in the way that it does in hospital and, and acute care may may help. I think the other challenge is this move to home care um, and what that means, because what we've found is that uh, home care is, you know, staying at home. I, I mean, who doesn't want to be safe? Who doesn't want to live in their own home? Uh, whatever that looks like. Uh, but, but, but it's been a very, very tricky um, thing to to do because it's not always ideal. <laughs> well, and I think part of that is to, is to 
look at what are the intergenerational opportunities and stop segregating older people in these in their own separate environments. I mean, it's just not natural, right? And we idolize it. I mean, we, we I mean, this, again, we overcorrect, you know, it's, so that yes, institutions are poor and not places that we need to say, why don't we improve um, congregate living or, or joint, mm. joint up living or situations? Because I mean, what we're finding is because women are living longer, um, is a whole a, a social isolation of older people in their own homes. I mean, there is no joy being in your own home, bricks and mortar, when you see nobody um, except for the carer. Um, so, so at least, at least in a, in a, I mean, why can't we design places that bring people together and aren't institutions, rather than the solution being to lock them in their home and say well, you should be happy here? Someone will rock up between eight and eight o'clock and nine o'clock, and the rest of the day, you know, have fun. Um, so when they're really frail, I'm not talking about you know, so. Hmm. Yeah. And, and and with dementia. So, so that, look, we need to be cleverer. I, 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 and that sort of dichotomy, you know, this or that, has got, to, has got to stop and we've got to think, well, how do you actually do um, middle ground stuff a bit better, which takes the best of this and the best of that and puts it together into something that looks like fun? And a lot of that is that, that I think good work is already taking place with age-friendly cities, with a World Health Organization program. And I think there's opportunities to say, what does that next version look like if we design our villages and our towns and cities that are genuinely intergenerational, genuinely inclusive, mm-hmm. and the uh, ability for older people to be to be seen and be central in the life of a local village and a local town uh, may require some retooling. It may require not having a car-centric approach to building towns like most US cities are still. Um, And it might have a new approach to security and safety and and, and their sort of urban planning and urban design and social infrastructure becomes part of the conversation. Mm, It's it's really interesting that we're mentioning those intergenerational communities. I'm edging towards the point of, of buying my first home and I keep saying like, oh, retirement village for so, oh, wait, no, they wouldn't let me in. But <laughs> the idea of like, of being able to live in a community of people who are up for socially engaging, who want extra support, who want to provide value to me as a younger person is, is really exciting and it's kind of disappointing that there's nothing there immediately for me to jump at. I think there are some models in the US maybe Katie or Stephen, you, you know of some that are kind of edging in that direction? Yeah, there are some. There are in Greece. Sorry, I was just going to say that the, the, the villages in Greece do it really well. <laughs> I was going to say that. My, my parents' old village in Greece is, would be a perfect environment for that. I just can't get over there at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Give, give me the plane ticket and I'll go. And they happen organically. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Katie. No, I, I was just going to say there are some, some examples. I think there are more and more people who are uh, providers that are looking to create those examples. There are some of them that are sort of natural that have just organically um, evolved. I mean, I live in a neighborhood in Washington, D.C., close to the Capitol, so Capitol Hill. And there is a village, a virtual village in my neighborhood of older adults who have come together and said, we want to stay in this neighborhood for as long as we can. So we're going to come together. We're going to create our own organization. We're going to run it ourselves. We're going to provide companionship to each other. We're going to help each other out. We're going to provide activities. So if there's a group of guys that love history and they meet for lunch every Tuesday and talk about history. And there's another group that plays yoga. I joined when I moved to this community because I was so curious about what was going on. I can't, you know, I'm busy. I, I don't do anything with them, but 
except read their newsletter and know what they're doing. But I love it because it's completely organic. It's completely self-driven. And it's older people saying, this is how we want to live the rest of our lives, or as long as we possibly can, to live our best lives. And we know we need each other. So we're going to lean on each other and learn from each other. Hmm. And there are these all over the country. And this is an opportunity for an opportunity for technology to play a role in facilitating that because again you know the chances of, of walking down the street and bumping into a half a dozen people with that mm -hmm. same mindset is, is is limited but finding a half a dozen people online with that same mindset within 10 kilometers is probably you know, a, a much more positive use of facebook than what the, than the to, uh, watching anti-vaxxers online so i think you're right <laughs> there's opportunities there. I, I love how a lot of these conversations end up with localism being a common thread which is you know at the end of the day it kind of goes back to how we've lived most of society in small groups of you know 150 people intergenerational very organic and i think a lot of what europe has got in to add to the conversation around innovation is to re imagine what success looks like where i think a lot of the time we think that innovation is all defined in terms of tech startups and um, big corporations but i think a lot of the more organic village vibe um, is native to europe and i think there's parts of america that are that are doing this as well but i think the mentality in in still american cities is is not like this. And I think that's where we, going back to the very beginning of the conversation, mm -hmm. learning from Japan, learning from parts of Asia, learning from in parts of Australia, and learning from wherever they are in the world that are doing interesting things, like the Blue Zones, for example, I think it's done a fantastic job of just sort of highlighting what works in a very organic, uh, but also analytically um, helpful way to sort of pull apart a model and, and, and bring those components. So that to me is just sort of shows that we sometimes have to go back uh, to go forward. Yeah. Hey guys, we've covered uh, a lot of different stuff here. Lots of different opinions and ideas shared on a really huge range of topics. Before I start wrapping up, do you guys have any questions for each other or anything you wanted to bring up while we've got this space and time? Well, you mentioned, George, about the efficiency. I think it's very interesting. I don't know if there's resources you can share about like how, uh, what are you doing in terms of helping people be more efficient in terms of the processes and the pro procedures? Is that something, a study that you've done? So we've been looking at, so we, we did a, a study last year looking at sort of the, the current level of use of technology in aged care and found it to be you know, hugely heterogeneous. We have some organizations that had, you know, great systems, bulk of organizations that had a few systems in place, but not not well integrated, and and many organisations that had nothing. So, we've been looking at that whole model of digital maturity. How do you build on your digital maturity to improve your organisation? Um, and 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 the reality is, you know, if your if your core infrastructure doesn't work, then just dropping in a solution into a organisation without core infrastructure. You know, I, I often talk about this concept of vanity projects. People do these great you know, technology demonstration projects, which look really good, but don't actually have any value because they just hmm. solve a, a very small part of the problem. So building on digital maturity is really important. Hmm. That then reflects back on digital workforce. How, how do you enable the workforce and how do you provide resources for the worst, for the workforce to be you know, to take better use of technology? But then co-design comes into it. How do you then work with the industry to say, what are the solutions we need? Because, yeah, I mean, I, I worked in, in vendor land for many years, I, you know, for a large American multinational and, you know, 
producing a solution is easy. Producing a or producing a, a technology solution is easy. Implementing it in a in an effective way in an organization and doing the change management associated with it is the hard part. And uh, yeah, we, it, it's going to be an ongoing journey. But you know, again, you know, highlighting successes and 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 sharing failures, I think, is a really important part of the journey forward, so that we uh, you know, learn from each other and 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 build upon it. Yeah, um, maybe follow up because we're doing a project right now where one of the objectives is how do we shift from one person able to uh, take care of um, two people to one person take care of four people. So like doubling the efficiency in the workforce. But I think that part of that is also what's the quality of the experience. As you get, you don't just want to reduce numbers. You want to reduce numbers, save costs, and improve the quality. And I think that sort of technology is a component, but the overall... This is where co-design is really important, including the consumer. You're making sure that we actually have that consumer reported experience and outcome as part of the measures, not just, you know, we're now, we can now provide care at, you know, at $3 per person versus $6 a person. That's not the metric you want. But, you know, but realistically, if we're only going to get X amount of dollars, we have to work out how we utilize that X amount of dollars most effectively. So it, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword, but, um, yeah. The experience is, is is critical as well. Well, George Margellis, Mary Patetsos, Katie Smith Sloan, and Stephen Johnson, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really enjoyable. Uh, I feel like I'm I've been scrambling to keep up and and stay on top of everything we've been talking about. So it's been really informative and interesting for me as well. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot, Ash. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Aged Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And if you're enjoying it, please leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. If you're interested in finding out how immersive virtual reality experiences can enrich the lives of older adults, visit the Silver Adventures website today at www.silver.com.au. See you next week.